Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the hemisphere-hugging movie review podcast with me, Dan. I'm not an axe murderer, but refreshed from a holiday in the (laughs) rainforest, now back in Melbourne, Australia. Ah, And me, Conrad. Turning into a Swifty in Cambridge, UK. Oh, what? <laughs> in this <laughs> podcast, we discuss overlooked fantastical cinema, sci-fi, horror, and fantasy, because covering our entire room in tinfoil, including <laughs> lamps and furniture, <laughs> are our idea of great home decorating. <laughs> it's a new look. Hello, Conrad. Hello, Dan. Welcome back. How are you doing? I'm back. I am back. But Melinda <laughs> did a fantastic job Didn't uh, in she? my absence. <laughs> yeah, uh, easy, easy, easily uh, a perfect replacement if anything should befall me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did very well. And it was great to have her here to talk about Troll, which she had a lot of fun talking about. Everyone's dying yes. to know if you've seen it and what you thought of it. <laughs> yes, I, I, I did watch it. Um, uh, and sort of before I listened to the episode that I wasn't in, which was quite a surreal <laughs> experience. Um, but I, you know, still heard myself within the podcast and the jingles and all the sort of little bits and pieces. Um, yes, I did watch Troll. Uh, my first comment would be Rat Burger. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm going to shout every time I have a burger uh, from now on. <laughs> but uh, it, it was it was actually a surprisingly fun movie. Um, it was mm. yeah, it was cheap and like not at all, no sense of realism at all. Nothing looked <laughs> real. Uh, the, the plastic plants. Like shaking under doors, just like I don't know how they thought that was going to look good, um, but it was fun. I kind of found it similar to uh, Lady in the Water, so it's sort of an urban fairy tale, like a, a sort of oh, a city okay. um, location with fairy tale creatures and elements um, injected into it. So I thought it was a, a lot of fun. Very odd movie. Um, <laughs> The the character Malcolm, I thought he was going to become much more of a bigger character, and it was I was kind of sad when he just got turned into an elf or something. Um, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it was a, it was a fun movie. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed. It. I okay. would recommend this. I would set it free. So that's yeah, that's okay. my final take. Phew, is okay. So everybody is is on, was on tenterhooks trying to find that out. So that's good. It's unanimous. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Unanimous all round. Yeah. So how was your holiday? How did it go? Uh, so I did go up to Queensland, up to Cairns, and further up to Port Douglas and um, uh, the Daintree Forest, Cape Tribulation. It's like the northern sort of tip, near the northern tip of uh, Australia. Uh, lots oh. of tropical vegetation. It's all rainforest. Like it's apparently one of the oldest rainforests 
in the world, the Daintree mm-hmm. rainforest. Uh, it's like 180 million years old. Wow. We went on a, croc- a crocodile tour. We saw some crocodiles. Um, we saw Ooh. a cassowary, which is this huge, like, emu-sized um, prehistoric um, bird that's like it's got a bright, um, vibrant blue neck head and this huge kind of bony horn on its head. Uh, oh, it's wow. very, if you look it up, a cassowary, it's quite a strange um, bird, um, but we managed to see one, so that was really exciting. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> I had a holiday. Let's get on with the podcast. <laughs> what are our listeners uh, saying in our socials? Well, we heard from Robert Pitts, who had a movie suggestion for us. He said, you need to check out Making Contact from 1985 with a possessed ventriloquist dummy and a boy with psychic abilities and a cute robot. It's a kid's movie. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. we. I mean, we haven't done the weird uh, ventriloquist doll, possessed doll movie, have we? No, not that I'm aware of. But I think this has got a little bit of everything in it. I, we do actually have it. It's in my stack. And I've got it as Joey. It's oh, okay. a Roland Emmerich movie, I think, from before he did Independence Day and Stargate. Uh-huh. So I think it's a okay. German language film oh, okay oh yeah well it sounds very interesting mm, yeah i've been intrigued so it's in the stack so maybe it'll come up for a patron's vote soon mm. yes yes on troll we heard from frank reynolds who said the editor of troll went on to edit boys don't cry reversal of fortune and single white female i sublet an apartment from him once very cool guy <laughs> oh okay <laughs> Well, they've got to live somewhere, don't they? Yeah, I guess so. Um, Yeah, so I looked him up. His name is Lee Percy. And he also edited Snowden, one of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's attempts to get an Oscar. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, didn't work. (laughs) Well, yeah. And finally, we heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Surge. Hello, Surge. And he said... Troll isn't a horror movie, but it's unnervingly uncanny, especially when it's pretending to be normal. It's not consistent in either tone or quality, but it's never not giving me things to think about or at least notice. Is that a recommendation? Well, it's better than the sequel. Mm, Well, I still haven't seen Troll 2, so uh, yeah, I would like to compare. Yeah, I would too, actually. It's interesting. I know how bad it's supposed to be, but I've never actually seen it. Mm. Serge concludes by saying both hosts of this week's episode of Movie Oubliette had seen it as kids, one of them extensively, whereas I was merely scarred by the cover art, so I'm sure priming is an important factor here. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes, yes, yes. Anyway, so yes, as always, we love hearing from you, so please do get in touch. Mm, yes, yes, please do. Mm. So what will we be doing now, Dan? Yes, well, I'll just hop on over and grab it. Ugh. Okay, I'm in a, a tinfoil-covered room. Oh. And lots of bug lamps. Okay, <laughs> oh, I think it's uh, it's on this uh, coffee table that's also covered in, in tinfoil. All right, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> is it covered in tinfoil? <laughs> oh, it is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put it in the microwave. Hey, I'm from Beaver. I am back. Ah, welcome back. Stop itching. Oh, yeah, I know. 
So today I have got a, a psychological thriller, a horror movie from 2006, directed by William Friedkin. It is Bug. Yes, the late William Friedkin. So we picked this movie mm. prior to the sad news of his passing. So this turns out to be a uh, unplanned but timely retrospective on his career almost. Yeah, yeah. I think this movie was not that popular. I don't know mm. anyone that's seen it. Anyway, it's based on a play by Tracy mm. Letts, uh, who also wrote the screenplay for this film. And it stars uh, Ashley Judd, Michael Shannon, uh, Harry Connick Jr. and Lynn Collins. Ooh. And what happens in this movie? Well, set in a rundown motel in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma, lonely Agnes meets a well-mannered, seemingly harmless guy, Peter, whilst partying with her best friend, R.C. Mm. They're instantly drawn to each other, forming a strong relationship. However, Peter's sudden discovery of an infestation of bugs slowly unravels the pair. Not even Agnes's abusive ex-husband or best friend can convince them that there are no bugs. Their insect-obsessed mental state snowballs to a rather grisly conclusion with Mm. plenty of tinfoil, murder and fire. Lots and lots of fire. (laughs) Is it all a government conspiracy or just a delusion? We'll find out after the break. Yes, can't wait. And we're back to talk about William Friedkin's Bug, a 2006 psychological thriller slash horror movie. Dan, had you seen this one before? Yes, I had seen this one before. I went through a stage of watching a lot of sort of indie, I guess, in inverted commas, uh, movies. So a lot of movies with very few characters, a lot of dialogue. So I was going through a lot of like Richard Linklater movies. Oh, um, right, yeah. And I did happen upon bug as well i'm not a big william friedkin fan i mean i guess i just haven't really seen any of his movies i've seen the exorcist like everyone else yeah and bug and i think parts of the french connection i'm not sure whether i've watched the entire movie but what's your sort of experience with william friedkin pretty much the same which feels a shame especially with the news of his passing it and lots of people eulogizing his genius Mm. it makes you feel like you should see more i've definitely seen sorcerer which i really enjoyed which is a a very tense thriller oddly enough i have not seen another play adaptation he did boys in the band which was groundbreaking because it's about gay characters i haven't seen cruising either which is an al pacino thriller about a serial killer targeting Mm. gay men on the cruising scene i haven't seen either of those i have seen Stuff from his 90s era. Okay. Which includes The Guardian, which was sort of a supernatural horror in which 
the nanny was evil. You know, it's that whole 90s cycle of various different things that were threatening the family in their beautiful oh, home with yeah, the white yeah, picket yeah. fence. Okay. So she was the nanny from hell. Okay. Although they'd already done that with the hand that rocks the cradle, but anyway. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. This had a whole thing to do with druids and trees, and it was batshit. It'd be interesting to look at at some point. Yeah, I think I have it. Yeah. I think I bought it at a sale. Yeah, I think you do. I think it's in your stack. So we might do it at some point. Mm. And he also did one of those erotic thrillers based on a script by Joe Esterhaz called Jade, but it's definitely an also ran. It's not right. Fatal Attraction or Basic Instinct uh-huh. by any means. I don't even think it's Body of Evidence. I think it's really bottom of the barrel stuff. Oh, okay. So he was sort of trading on his horror credentials in the 90s and coasting, and it wasn't doing very well for him. And then you get Bug and Killer Joe, both adaptations of Tracy Letts plays mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the noughties and that seemed to be considered sort of a renaissance for him right and then he hasn't directed anything since but he's just made a movie called the cane mutiny court martial okay yeah he just finished it before he passed so we have one more friedkin movie to come but i had never seen bug Mm. or killer joe actually not seen either i haven't seen killer joe yeah i mean considering the three movies well three-ish movies i've seen uh, the Exorcist, French Connection, and Bug—very different movies. Yes, like very, very different. <laughs> yeah, they are. I mean, he seemed to be able to turn his hand to any genre that he liked. Although, having said that, his attempt at a comedy, Deal of the Century, in 1983, I don't think that went down particularly well. Right. I think he's just a good filmmaker, but he got you know after The Exorcist, which was just massive. Mm. I think he kind of got typecast a little bit. Right, right, right. Yeah, because this movie doesn't feel like it, it does feel like an indie film, but it, comparing it to The Exorcist, it feels like night and day. Like I wouldn't have seen any connection in terms of like signature directing style or any aspects of how Friedkin would make a film like I don't I don't see any similarities at all no I suppose it's his directorial style is not necessarily one that sort of marks him out as a great auteur it's not like a Wes Anderson movie where you look at it and go oh that's a Wes Anderson movie yeah I don't think he necessarily has that I think he creates something that fits the material and in this case, he was very keen when working with Tracy Letts that he not do anything that jeopardise the material. So he doesn't do the thing that you sometimes do with adaptations of stage plays and say, oh, you know, I think he jokes, you know, hey, in this scene, maybe they should be on horseback. You know, <laughs> he doesn't try to open it out significantly because the whole point of it is two people in a room steadily going crazy. Mm. And so he keeps that pressure on. I think possibly that aspect of it appeals to him because the sort of dark political undertones to it and the central characters being tested on faith versus science. Uh I mean, in this case, their faith is something completely self-concocted and pretty wild (laughs) rather than an established religion. But again, it is very much science versus a fringe home-baked theory that appeals to the psychology of the individuals. Mm. So uh, maybe it's thematically the material that appealed to him more so than the yeah. his filmmaking approach to directing it. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned that it, it does have a very indie feel, uh, similar to a, a lot of Richard Linklater movies, because it's, yeah, it 
it's hardly any characters in this movie. It's it's basically two characters for the most part. Yeah, there are two or three other characters that come through, but it's mainly the character of Agnes played by Ashley Judd and um, Peter Evans played by Michael Shannon in this motel room, this kind of rundown motel room that she lives in. And yeah, they just steadily go crazier and crazier. And it's interesting that it's called bug, but it does have a lot of multiple meanings to the word bug. Like, yes, they think they're infested with these aphids for some reason, which makes no sense. No, (laughs) And they do talk about it making no sense because aphids are plants. They're bugs on plants. They don't eat humans. They don't bite humans. So anyway, they think they're infested with these aphids that you never see. No. You never see any bug shown on film ever. They're always pointing at things, but there's never a bug to be seen. But there's also the idea of, of being surveillance, being bugged, yeah. so to speak. Um, and there's these strange phone calls. There's the sound of a helicopter always um, sort of overhead. So there's that sort of aspect as well. So it does deal with a lot of themes of paranoia, sort of loneliness, isolation. But it did feel quite familiar to a lot of conspiracy theorists and QAnon sort of individuals that have cropped up over the past few years as well. It does, yeah. It's Tracy Letts was inspired by Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma bomber, right. to write the play. So that happened in 95, and then he wrote the play in 96. And yeah, it's very much that mindset, the conspiracy theory mindset. In this case, what the film does is it puts these two characters together and you have two parallel stories, really. It's a a love story. Michael Shannon says that he thinks that it's a darkly comic love story. Right. So it's looking at how an individual will become codependent and therefore, in order to be part of the life experience of somebody else, will even adopt their beliefs in some way and they will end up codependent on each other and amplifying each other's beliefs until it gets to a, you know mm. an extreme level, unfortunately, in this case. Yeah. But also just that need, because I think it's fair to say that Agnes is pretty much on the fringes of society. Mm. She's not doing great. She works in a bar. She has an ex-husband who is just getting out of prison. Mm. She had a child which she lost nine or ten years ago in mysterious circumstances. It was taken from her while she was shopping in a grocery store. Mm. And she's living in a motel, so it feels like she's right on on the edge you know she's not having a great time and peter evans is on the run from a military hospital mm. where he believes he was being experimented on or maybe he was being treated because mentally he is not very well mm. it could easily be either but he's on the run from that and the two of them come together and just concoct this fantasy and this understanding of how they perceive the world that puts them in a position of power. You know, they have special knowledge. They are Mm. the centre of this massive conspiracy, so therefore they are important people with agency rather than complete losers who are on the brink of starvation almost. Mm. So that's kind of the two things running in parallel. What would you do? How extreme would you go in order to be in love with somebody? And how deranged is love, you know, love is insanity Mm. versus the whole conspiracy theory experience whereby disenfranchised and poor people end up believing in these ridiculous things just because it gives them something special and, and makes them feel better about themselves. Yeah. 
But I also see similarities with the whole like internet phenomenon with QAnon and all, and all those conspiracy theorists yeah. in terms of it's an echo chamber. They're completely isolated. Oh, yeah. They don't have any sort of connection with the outside world and reality and society. It's just them, just the two characters stuck inside this motel room. They don't have computers or the internet. And any time an outside force like RC, the best friend, comes in trying to convince them, it's not real, it's not real, there's no bugs. They just don't believe it because they're sort of reinforcing each other. It's that sort of echo chamber mentality. Yeah, um, very much so. And also when Harry Connick Jr.'s character, Jerry, he's a bad guy. So of course they're not going to listen to this guy because he's just an asshole anyway. He's violent, he's obnoxious he's not a nice character no he's not i mean that's the interesting thing with jerry is that he is the ex-con ex-husband not quite sure what the situation is he shows up and he's immediately laying claim to agnes like Mm. our relationship is just going to continue where we left off it's clear that relationship was abusive Mm. and he just takes her money and just lays claim to her life her future her body everything just immediately assumes he can just have it and then when she stands up for herself slaps her to the floor yeah so immediately because the film opens with her getting these phone calls where nobody speaks Mm. she claims it's jerry that is menacing her with these calls He claims that it's not him when he shows up, that he has no idea what she's talking about. Mm. So the film sets it up as though it's the ex-con coming back who is the outside threat. Mm. But then when he shows up, he isn't really. He's quite a complicated character because on the one hand, he's toxic and not a nice guy in this relationship. But at the same time, you get these little shreds of him, like pointing out to Peter that when he's dragged out all of their child's toys, Mm. that he really ought to clear them away before Agnes gets home because it will upset her. And then talking quite plaintively about how difficult it was for him to hold down all the jobs that he needed to hold down in order to provide for his family. Mm. So you think he's not a 100% stereotypical asshole. Mm. He's just another guy who's in a really bad situation and not dealing with it very well. And in the end, he's sort of the outside saviour who's trying to break in and stop something terrible from happening in the finale. Mm. So Jerry's not as clear-cut as he appears he's sort of stereotypically the external threat Mm. but then as the film develops more ambiguous and possibly even heroic yeah no that's interesting that's interesting you say that because i i did see him as the threat and as the sort of terrible antithesis to like um to peter's character because i i feel like without jerry peter would seem much more creepy like peter is quite a strange character to start off with he's very reserved he's very polite like almost unsettlingly polite like he calls her ma'am and she even says like don't call me that like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he almost seems quite sheltered like he hasn't lived and hasn't gone out and traveled the world like he seems like he's very naive but then he has all these weird conspiracy theories and turns into a completely different character by the end and i feel like agnes wouldn't have this connection with him without jerry being the absolute arsehole that he was 
like slapping her in the face because it's it's that sort of contrast between the two characters. Yeah, he seems quite sweet and harmless by comparison to Jerry, you're right. And as well as that, he makes it clear that he's not sexually interested in her to begin with Yeah, because he's asexual almost. But then mm. eventually says that she's different and he'll make an exception for her. Yeah. I did think it was interesting as well because both Peter and Agnes turn into different characters by the end of the movie. So Agnes is much more, I feel like she is a confident, sort of empowered woman at the start. Mm. But then at the end, she's like a scared, restless, almost like a junkie without the drugs. Like she's just cannot cope with reality. She's like slapping all these imaginary bugs away from her face. Whereas... Peter at the start, he doesn't seem in control. He seems like he's very like shy and reserved. But in the end, he's very much in control to the point where he murders someone mm. <laughs> because he thinks they're a machine. Yes, Dr. Sweet, who he stabs, which is possibly, apart from a few moments of self-mutilation, probably the most overt scene of horror in the movie. And there aren't that many of them. Yeah, I mean, when he pulls out his tooth, though, uh, I mean, I was yeah. just like clutching my face <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> the yeah self-dentistry is not good <laughs> no 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 well it's a very intense performance from michael shannon who had originated the role in the stage play oh right so he's known this material for uh, over a decade by the time that they made this movie and friedkin had to fight for him to be the male lead in this movie because Michael Shannon was not very well known at the time. He was cropping up in a lot of movies. If you look at his filmography, he's all over the place, including something I completely forgotten, which is his debut in Groundhog Day, where he's one of the newlywed couple. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, no, I I completely did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, he's one of those actors that completely flies under the radar for me. Like, I Mm. know he's in stuff, and I do recognize him, but I forget what he's in. Yeah. But so much, so much. I mean, obviously, his biggest role now is in all the DC movies as Zod. Mm. So, The Man of Steel, the new Flash movie, he's in that as well. But he's also uh, in Bullet Train recently and in Knives Out, Shape of Water. But then, like, some classics like um, Eight Mile, Pearl Harbor, Vanilla Sky. Bad Boys 2. Like, he is in a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's a busy character actor. And when he's in big franchise movies, he tends to be evil. Yeah. Because he does play psychologically disturbed extreme people quite well and terrifyingly well, as we said. I mean, he's terrifying in this. It's his buggy eyes. I mean, excuse the pun, but they are kind of buggy. (laughs) Like, they're they're disturbing. So this movie is a play, or it's based on a play, and it feels like a play. It feels Mm. like you've got scene changes where it's like, okay, we've got the flypaper 
scene and we've got the tinfoil scene like you can see like i can imagine this as a stage show like okay this is a set change this is what it looks like now and then you have a extended dialogue scene with lots and lots and lots of dialogue and then it ends and then we've got the next scene which is a completely different look to the set yeah and there aren't that many cutaways or parallel stories being developed you don't see rc's life separate from agnes you don't see jerry's life separate from his appearances Mm. there is no attempt made to widen out this story at all but that serves as i said the nature of the pressure cooker that they're trying to create here yeah but yeah it's very much a stage play on film yeah i do find that is the downfall of adapting stage plays they do Mm. feel like they are still stage plays like i don't feel like a lot of cinematic input into a stage play adaptation and i watched fences that uh denzel washington that movie and that movie's great but it also just feels like a stage play lots of extended dialogue scenes one location at a time there's no sense of movement location wise No, I mean, the one thing I do like is the recurring motif of the helicopter. Mm. There's a fantastic opening shot that is slowly moving towards the motel, Mm. locating it in this sort of desert wilderness. I think it is actually Oklahoma where the film is set. Right, yes. And those scenes where, for example, after Peter and Agnes are first emotionally vulnerable with each other, they almost split up, they have an argument, and then he comes back in and he's sobbing, explaining his backstory and says that he doesn't want to leave. And she comes out of the bathroom and says, uh-huh. don't leave me, don't leave me. So they've been vulnerable, exposed themselves to each other in, in, in a way. And at that point, the helicopter blows up the room there's like lights flying everywhere the bed sheets are flying around the room it's like a poltergeist event almost (laughs) in this room supposedly just because this helicopter is hovering overhead and yet you cut and this is never mentioned again there are no after effects it's just like this explosion of emotion in the room so yeah and they have the same effect towards the end when everything is sort of getting really tense and extreme and mm. the two of them spoilers are about to set themselves on fire and jerry's trying to bust down the door mm. and the interesting thing there is that inside the room for agnes and peter it's lights everywhere helicopters yeah. overhead it's, it's complete chaos yeah you cut to jerry's side and it's like desert at night crickets there's nothing happening yeah (laughs) so yeah yeah i wonder if that's just the one moment where you get to cut outside of agnes and peter's fantasy and you get to see the Mm. reality of how things really are or whether it's just two different perceptions of the same thing and neither is objectively true Mm, mm. i mean what i listened to the commentary um of this movie um with the director i think it's the director by the way not a great commentary i have to say he pretty much (laughs) recites what's happening in the movie as it's happening (laughs) like where's the insight william freaking like i want to know about like how many takes you did like where was the location what's the set like what lenses you used i don't want to know about what's happening right in front of me like i know that (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can see it yeah it's one of my least favorite things on commentary is number one just describing the scene number two eating oh yeah it's terrible one other thing that was very odd about the commentary with the director is i think he thought the commentary was going to be edited 
because he says a line. It's almost like he's reading off a script, but he's not. He's just talking, but he will say something, and then he will stop midway because he's flubbed it up, and he will say it again. And so he keeps saying a lot of things twice, <laughs> but it's all in the commentary. It's unedited, so oh, it's no. very strange to listen to. Oh, no. That's embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Poor William Friedkin, they're exposing all of his flubs. That's not great. Yeah, it's an odd experience to listen to that. Yeah. I mean, one insight that he does mention uh, with the movie and his sort of uh, interpretation of the play is he did leave a lot of ambiguity. Mm. So he does leave it open to interpretation of whether any of the stuff even happens, like whether any of the helicopter stuff is real at all or whether it's completely a delusion. Also, the murder of Dr. Sweet, whether that even happens, whether Dr. Sweet is just a figment of their imagination or whether he was a real character. So he kind of does leave it open. Yeah, and also Peter is sort of complaining about aphids in their bed early on and is pointing at this spot on the bed and Friedkin does not go in for a close-up. No, there could no. be something there, but equally there might not be. Agnes certainly yeah. does not see it or says that she can't see it, but eventually just believes him on the basis that, well, he must be pointing at something mm, and mm. maybe I just need to get my eyes tested. And then she goes from that to immediately accepting anything that Peter says yeah. as their yeah. relationship grows and their codependency grows. Yeah, but I do feel like there is a focus or a sort of a, um emphasis on these people are just crazy there is a bit of grey area and ambiguity, but for the most part, it's like, yeah, these people are just going insane. They are just crazy people, as opposed to other movies like Ten Cloverfield Lane or The Invisible Man or The Forgotten, St. Maud, where you think, oh, is it happening or is it not happening? And then it's definitely not happening or it is happening as in some of those movies yeah i think it does a reasonably good job of maintaining that ambiguity but the thing is that the things that they are believing in are just so ridiculous and especially when it gets to the end where they're in the tinfoil room and peter is demanding that agnes think harder and see the connections between these different things in her life mm. and she sits there and just spins this ridiculous ridiculous yarn that incorporates every aspect of her life yeah rc jerry the disappearance of her son in the grocery store mm. and fabricates this conspiracy that is entirely centered upon her until she ends up standing up and screaming i am the mother <laughs> super bug or whatever it is that she I screams i am the mother super bug yeah yeah it's, it's great it's great but uh, i i do find like performance wise when you have, you know, people unraveling in terms of their mental state, it reaches a point where it's no longer distressing and sad. It's just funny. Right. Like, I found the last scene incredibly comedic. And I don't think it's supposed to be. Okay. But I laughed a lot. I laughed at the superbug line. Yeah. But I think it's supposed to be. William Friedkin did have a very, very dark sense of humour. I mean, he always thought The Exorcist was pretty funny. Well, but, yeah. <laughs> and 
he has described it as a black comedy. Right. And so has Michael Shannon, and so has Tracy Letts. Uh-huh. And I think they were pretty disappointed with the fact that Lionsgate attempted to sell it to the hostel crowd. So right. that all of the marketing when the film was released, I think Tracy Letts jokes about it in an interview, and it's very funny saying, you know, the trailers were sort of like, they live in your blood. Right. They multiply in your brain. You know, it's ludicrous. He said, because all these teenagers that loved torture porn were showing up to this movie and thinking, what the hell is this? Yeah. And all the people that might have been interested in a, a psychological study of codependency and insanity mm. didn't show up because they thought it was some stupid torture porn movie. Yeah, right. So, right. did not do terribly well. I mean, it garnered $8 million worldwide on a $4 million budget. And it was released uh-huh. on the 25th of May 2007 and placed fifth behind Pirates of the Caribbean at the World's End, right. Shrek the Third, Spider Man 3, and Waitress, a rom com with Kerry Russell and Nathan Fillion that I have mm-hmm. completely forgotten. Note that three of those movies are the third entry in a franchise <laughs> at three equals. And. Yeah. Tracy, let's just said, just releasing it alongside Pirates of the Caribbean was just insane. Yeah. Just a ridiculous choice. No, no chance. (laughs) Now it's time for Random Trivia. Okay, it's trivia time. Conrad, it's your turn today to give us your bug-infested morsel of goodness. Well, my little piece of trivia comes from Michael Shannon, and he said that this is his favourite piece of trivia about the movie. The last shot in the film was not directed by anyone, and that's because when the special effects guys put the flammable gel over the tinfoil room. They obviously overdid it because when they lit that room, it was such a terrifying blazing inferno (laughs) for the whole cast and crew who were watching safely from outside behind the camera ran screaming into the, the school courtyard to get out of there. Wow. And the cinematographer's eyebrows uh, were that's Michael Grady. His eyebrows were singed, <laughs> so he abandoned the camera and ran. So he said that slow tilt up that ends the movie up to the ceiling. Uh-huh. Nobody directed that. That's the camera just just doing its own thing. Oh wow! While the set burns down. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Like the tripod just melting under the extreme. Yeah, something. <laughs> but amazingly, the footage was fine that yeah that final shot is terrifying it's just so much fire yeah Uh, just so much destruction yeah so but when you watch the movie and you watch that shot just think of the cast and crew running from the room in horror okay uh yeah (laughs) that's that trivia it is I'm going to go back to talking about performances. Uh, We did talk about Michael Shannon. Mm. I thought Ashley Judd was phenomenal in this movie. I don't think I've seen her play a character like this before. No, I haven't either. I mean, it feels like she kind of disappeared after her heyday in Miramax movies like Double Jeopardy. And of course, we all know why. Oh, really? I mean, that's the only other movie I've seen her in, I feel. 
Yeah, so she was this burgeoning massive star with critical acclaim and popular appeal, and then she appears in a Miramax movie, mm-hmm. and at that point crosses paths with Harvey Weinstein. Right, that's right. And awful things happen to her. And so her voice actually appears in that movie recently where they were looking at the two reporters that were trying to expose all of Harvey Weinstein's wrongdoing. She actually makes a right. a voice-only cameo in that, talking to them on the phone about her real experiences playing herself. Wow. As Michael Shannon said about this movie, she came into this movie, the way he put it, was with a lot of ammunition. Huh. And shortly after this movie was released... She checked herself into a clinic to get help with depression and codependency, interestingly enough. So, yeah, Ashley was dealing with a lot of personal torment and experiences in Hollywood at that time. Mm -hmm. And to see her, if she did, sort of channel that or just challenge her creativity into this character, it's very impressive. It's an amazing performance. Yeah, yeah. And and even nudity-wise, very revealing. I guess you would say. Oh, yeah. I mean, the two of them lay themselves bare during the course of the movie, literally and uh, figuratively. Yeah. So it's gutsy stuff. It is. It's, I don't know. I feel like on this podcast, we don't really see performances like this very often. No. Like it's full on crying and um, like raw emotion, what looks like real emotion as well on screen. incredibly impressive performances. Yeah, and I guess that speaks to the quality of writing. I mean, Tracy Letts is a Pulitzer Prize winner for writing drama. He's pretty damn good, Yeah, (laughs) So I think this is very much a two-hander for two actors on stage. So there is a lot of focus on performance and character creation in the most extreme of psychological profiles as well. So Mm. it's meaty stuff. You can immediately see why Ashley Judd was attracted to it at this point in her life. Sure. When she's probably not getting offers like like this very much and obviously the backers of the movie wanted a name to be in there because if they were going to have Michael Shannon who was not very well known then at all Mm. they needed something to hang the advertising around what did you think of Harry Connick Jr as Jerry I thought he was great Mm. I was convinced that he was an asshole I mean I didn't even realize he did that much acting but he does and he was in Independence Day like uh, a voice in the Iron Giant he's in basic uh copycat uh memphis bell i think was one of his first sort of standout roles because he's just a jazz singer right yeah that's how i know him i know and it's interesting <laughs> the roles that he chooses i mean particularly copycat was an eye-opener because he's kind of this squeaky clean crooning michael blue blave kind of figure in my mind right yes exactly and then he showed up in copycat with a chipped tooth playing this really revolting serial killer just this disgusting man yeah in every way and here as a representation of really brutish toxic masculinity he is threatening but he's also quite charming as well yeah so it's very well done i think good casting yeah i mean he's not a bad looking guy like it's not like they they chose a very menacing guy to play the bad guy he sort of treads that line really well 
Yeah, you can see why Agnes would have fallen in love with him in the first place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, with a body like that. I mean, come on. <laughs> come on, lady. <laughs> yeah, I did like the scene where she assumes that Peter is in the shower and then the door opens and out comes Jerry, just emerges from this room, enshrouded in this mist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. No shit on. Yeah, I thought they were going to do sort of the sort of double character thing. Like, I thought it was going to be like a... The first time I watched it, like a sort of fight club sort of scenario, but they are distinctly two characters. (laughs) They are, yeah. And we see them having conversations with each other. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Briefly, I I wanted to mention Lynn Collins, uh, who plays Arcee. She was in one episode of Hit Record on TV. Was she? Season one. She was in the customer service sort of short that they made oh, um, okay and i do remember her she has like brunette here and there oh okay yeah <laughs> she's very good as rc she's kind of the life of the party she's the only sort of happy-go-lucky openly funny character and yeah that's uh, a breath of fresh air yeah and also comes in trying to offer a, an external independent perspective on their situation but is a well, not immediately rejected for it because Agnes is kind of going along with her and wanting to see a doctor and getting a second opinion. Yeah, and, she but is. then uh, Peter pitches a fit and then she slaps her in the face and rejects her. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I did want to talk about Peter in terms of he is very manipulative mm-hmm. in controlling Agnes in a way that's different to how partners would control their loved ones. So he's not controlling her aggressively or domestically like maybe how jerry would but he is kind of victimizing himself so that she would take pity on him and stay with him so that's an interesting dynamic yeah and it uniquely works on agnes because she's ready to stand up to jerry yes but the woman who lost her child and has nowhere to put all of that maternal instinct is presented with this wounded bird that needs looking after and that works like a charm doesn't it yeah so it's whether he's consciously doing it or whether he is subconsciously doing it yes he's doing all the right things to hook her in and get her Mm. more and more involved in his world yes 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 it's scary in a different way yeah it's almost a tragedy it's the two of them have got these flaws neither of which are their fault really. They've been through some bad experiences, both of them, and the two of them together is just a nightmarish combination. Sadly, they're the worst things that each person can possibly have. Yeah. I also wasn't sure about Lloyd, so the son that Agnes lost, Mm. he disappeared. I wasn't sure whether she had lost him because he had disappeared or whether she was just a terrible mother and they're taking him away to, you know, child protective services or something. Like, what was your take on that? I wasn't sure entirely. You do get the flashback of her in the grocery store and you get the hint of it early on when she's shopping and she's remembering. Mm. She's sort of staring wistfully at onions and then looking at an empty shopping cart. (laughs) So you get foreshadowing of the memories that will come Mm. tumbling out later. And Jerry certainly doesn't offer us a different perspective Mm. that suggests that the child was taken away. What I find really confusing is what Dr. Sweet says when he turns up and he's either a figment of their imagination or he's real and he's humoring them because he knows that the only way to get them to cooperate is to 
tell them something that will fit into their worldview yeah. and saying, I'll take Peter in and we can do an operation on him. We can get rid of the bugs. We made a mistake and I know it was wrong and I'll fix it. But then he says to her that he can even get her child back and that he's alive yeah. and he knows where Lloyd is. And that's, even if he's humouring her, that's just cruel. That's awful. Yeah. I do question whether he was real. He smoked some drugs in front of them. Yeah. For some weird reason. I, I thought, well, why is he doing this? Like, it just felt like a sort of a non-existent character, like a character that will just do whatever because he's not real. Yeah, could well be. It's a hauntingly strange performance as well from Brian F. O'Byrne. Mm-hmm. Not somebody I recognise. But that's one of the areas of the film where I'm not really sure Mm. what exactly happened because we're not presented with enough information from reliable narrators. Mm, Yeah. I wanted to talk about sets. Uh, It's the same motel room the whole way through, but it does go through a bunch of different transformations. At one point, there's flypaper everywhere. And then, of course, the tinfoil room. Yes. It must have been amazing. It must have been so much fun to do that. (laughs) Like, just wrap everything in tinfoil hang a bunch of bug lamps. <laughs> I noticed the telephone and the stereo are wrapped in plastic. Yeah. <laughs> so they must have had a lot of fun with that with that set. Yeah, I noticed every single blade of the ceiling fan has been individually wrapped in tinfoil. <laughs> the work involved in that must have been phenomenal. Yeah. So they shot this in a school gymnasium. Ah, uh, they, they? built the set inside a school gymnasium, yeah. And the sets were designed, actually, by the same guy that was the production designer for Hostel. Right. Uh, So it's sort of the same sort of grungy, down-and-out, grimy detail Mm. that you might expect from that. But yeah, it works, and it gives you a very different colour temperature for the different parts of the movie. So, you know, it's very rustic and warm and earthy tone to begin with, and then the Mm. end of the movie is just completely blue. Yeah, from the bug lamps and just... A lot of reflective services. <laughs> yeah, it's visually they managed to make the most out of a slow descent into madness in this one room as the narrative progresses. Yeah, and then the final scene as well with them setting themselves on fire naked as well. Mm. They they strip off all their clothes, uh, just cover everything in gasoline and lights it. And that expression from Agnes, that sort of shock of. <gasps> When he lights that match, it's just, like, horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) And then everything just explodes. Yeah. Fortunately, you don't see what happens to them. Yeah. Unlike the ending of St. Maud, for example, which was... (laughs) St. Maud. Haunted me. Yeah. No, yeah. Self-immolation. It's not fun, I don't think. No, 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 no. But talk about a slap in the face for an ending. Oh, yeah. It's credits. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely your your grungy noughties independent movie with a downer of an ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we have to mention quickly score. Not much score. No. Uh, a lot of diegetic music. Uh, some sort of hints of heavy metal at points just inserted in places. I, I did find they used sound really well in terms of making it really jarring mm. and unnerving. So really loud sound cues or music cues and then just 
cuts it out. Yeah, very much like The Exorcist, the sound design in that is superb and built towards making you as uncomfortable as possible. And that's definitely reflected here too. Yeah, you don't get a lot from Brian Tyler, who's a very accomplished film score composer. Yeah, because I know him for doing a lot of big blockbuster action movies. Yeah. Like, a lot. Like, I think he's done a bunch of the Fast and Furious movies, a bunch of the Marvel movies. He's done two screen movies, Expendables movies. Yeah, he's he's the guy for, for action or blockbuster. Yeah, and particularly for things that are sort of infused with a rock sensibility as well when one is needed. So mm. if you want to have drum set and guitar thrushing along with your orchestra, then <laughs> Brian Tyler's the guy to call, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And also well known for being probably the most handsome film score composer on earth. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I always remember being in a film score forum where somebody was saying okay who do you think's the most handsome film score composer and somebody immediately replied paging brian tyler (laughs) right okay (laughs) coming to you live from the movie oubliette theater it's the prestigious moobly awards Hello, it's that special time of the pod, the Moobly Awards, where we nominate our favourite aphid-infested parts of the film in a number of <laughs> self-immolating categories. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> Best quote. My favourite quote is quite a sad one. It comes from Agnes, and I think it's the emotional crux of the movie. And she says to Peter... I'd rather talk about bugs with you than about nothing with nobody. Mm. Aww. Aww. Yeah. She's so lonely, she'd rather self-immolate with this bug-infested <laughs> lunatic <Jesus>. than, <laughs> than carry on being alone. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow. Uh, my favourite quote is, it's, I, I don't know, I, I found this movie incredibly funny in parts. So there's there's one part where uh, where Arcee is has has come in and she's like sort of um, questioning there are no bugs and and Peter's asking Agnes if if she believes in the presence of bugs but she's not sure so he replies the sign outside says vacancies or no vacancies it doesn't say possibility of vacancies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's an absolutist. You're either in or you're out. Yeah. His conspiracy. Yeah. 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 Best hair or costume? Well, talking about RC, uh, I guess there aren't really any costumes or hair that's that noteworthy in this movie. But RC is sort of the epitome of uh, the 2000s because she's got the sort of tight jeans, the sort of cowboy studded belt uh studded leather wristbands uh and blonde streaky hair just really reminiscent of like uh characters like hannah montana and avril lavigne and so kelly clarkson that sort of rock chick look that was very sort of yeah prevalent in the early 2000s um sort of rock meets country as well um but yeah she does look great. I've written exactly the same thing. And I, I was waiting in the bar scene for her to jump up on the bar and start singing Can't Fight the Moonlight because... <laughs> right, yes. 
it's just yeah the whole wavy blonde hair with bangs mm, mm. and, the, and the, the tight jeans and the vest top and too much jewelry she's got rings on every finger and they're yeah. not delicate rings either they're rings. massive yeah i know yeah. i know <laughs> yeah she must have had a hard time getting through airport security oh yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> most naughty moment i mean i see his clothes obviously but also i feel like there was a resurgence of sort of indie films in the noughties hmm. like i'm thinking of um sort of donnie darko juno um requiem for a dream was it considered an indie film um, mysterious skin yeah, little miss sunshine elephant and napoleon dynamite um and and a lot of films sort of dealing with the human condition or like mental health or sort of a lot of character driven sort of dialogue heavy indie dramas in, in the early 2000s yeah and I, I wonder whether it's the emergence of digital cameras that made that possible sure in the early aughts yeah yeah possibly i think it might have done it's not streaming because that's yeah you're about a decade away from that but yeah i did wonder about that mm. the other thing i thought was um things inspired by domestic terrorism um right yes well things inspired by terrorism but in this case domestic terrorism so um, I just think that it, that sort of sense of paranoia post 9-11 in mm. the early aughts did mean that you got a lot of these sort of uh, paranoid movies, edgy yeah. movies. But, yeah. Uh, Favourite scene! Um, I did like the flypaper scene, or the scene where they mm. had flypaper sort of dangling from everything. Um, there were just so many sort of dynamics or changes of dynamics. So it starts off with with Jerry um, and Peter talking, and then RC and uh, Agnes enter the room, and then Jerry's told to leave, and then RC is trying to convince them that bugs don't exist, and then finally it sort of ends with Peter freaking out, um, and sort of that that shift where Agnes is not sure whether she believes in bugs or or peter's um sort of fear of of the infestation and then she completely chooses his side and i just like all of those dynamics sort of intertwined um between all the characters yeah she's all in from that point onwards you're right yeah it's the crux of the movie and it's where my favorite line comes from too so yeah Mm. most cliche moment my biggest cliche is the gay best friend. Oh, who yes. provides oh, yes. comic relief, but doesn't actually have an on-screen relationship because ugh, who wants to see that? So I'm thinking particularly during this period, I mean, probably the, the example everyone thinks of is Rupert Everett in My oh, Best Friend's my Wedding friend. in yes, yes, yes. 1997. He, he also played the same role to Madonna in The Next Best Thing in 2000. Uh-huh. There's the character Damien in Mean Girls in 04, Stanley Tucci in The Devil Wears Prada in 2006, uh, Paul Rudd in The Object of My Affection uh, as well. So 
late 90s, early aughts. It was mm. all <laughs> about the gay best friends providing the comic relief in a really otherwise heavy movie, maybe, <laughs> or in a rom-com. They're always there for a good laugh, but never see their partners, ever. No. Yeah. De- never see them with partners. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Best special effect. Are there any special effects in this movie? I guess it's just the two violent scenes. So the the teeth pulling mm. out scene and, and, and the murder stabby scene. Uh, in terms of like fake blood and, and just absolute horror, the teeth pulling out scene is is... Yeah, it's horrific because there's just so much blood. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot of blood. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say would be Peter's appearance at the end of the movie. You get kind of a hint of it early on, like at the beginning of the film, you get a sudden shot of the tinfoil-filled bathroom with Peter lying in it, which is obviously where he is before he emerges. Mm. But that final moment when he emerges to confront Dr. Sweet and his hair's sticking out everywhere and he's bare-chested and just covered with Mm. self-inflicted wounds and he's got like blood like dripping from one of his eyes or something yeah yeah i mean he he looks terrifying it's very much like the effects in the exorcist on reagan actually that the horror comes from how much she's wounded herself Ah, yeah uh, during the possession that's what makes her look so horrific Mm. but uh yeah i thought that was pretty good work yeah yeah favorite sound effect so sound effect for me um so there is a sex scene in this movie and it's sort of approached in a really interesting way to the point it's almost like asmr like the so the music's really quiet sort of gentle like a plucked i think it's like, it's like a plucked instrument i'm not entirely sure what it is um and then mm. all you can hear sound wise is like just really quiet breathing and gasping and and it's sort of a gentle um wave of of hissing bugs and like the womp womp sort of sound of the heli- helicopter slash fan blades sort of spinning around. But it's really quiet. Like the whole scene is like mm. super quiet. So it's quite a strange, eerie um, experience to watch. Yeah, it's not sexy at all. Yeah. Um, although everyone, everyone's very sweaty. There's a lot of moisture <laughs> um, oh, <yeah. laughs> in, in the scene. Um, but yeah. Like, sound-wise, it's an interesting choice. Mm. Well, my favourite was just one particular noise, and it's the cricket chirp that turns Ah. out to be a smoke alarm. Yes. Which I think is a a relatable experience for everyone. (laughs) The sound actually slowly morphs when you listen to it, slowly morphs from something that is clearly organic to Uh begin with to something that's believably electronic. Right, yes, yes. It's fun if you're listening to it in 5.1 surround sound because it does move around according to which shot you're in. Ah, They're trying to locate it, you know, because it's really difficult to figure out where sounds are coming from sometimes when you're in Mm. enclosed space with lots of um, reflections, but... Yeah, I just thought it, it was a very clever piece of sound design. Also, thematically, it's quite important because it's it, it's an insect, it's uh-huh. a bug. Yeah, yeah. But then when they finally trace down its source, it's an electronic monitoring device. Ah, and yes. one that has a radioactive isotope in it, so it's actually harmful to human beings as well. So thematically, yeah, it sums it up quite yeah, nicely. Yeah, yeah. Most funniest moment. I have to say it, the funniest moment was when Agnes, in in the depths of her delusion, covered in blood, arms outstretched to the heavens, 
Uh, she screams, I am the super mother bug! Was so <laughs> hilarious to me. Just so hilarious. Yeah, I did laugh at that. But uh, it's uh, it's still a wonderful, fully committed performance. Yeah. I believe Agnes believes that at that moment. Yeah, yeah, she does. She does. <laughs> but what yeah. a line. It's an empowering moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. My funniest moment is a little line of comedy between Agnes and Peter, where <laughs> Peter, in all earnest, says that he's from Beaver, uh, a town, presumably, uh-huh, yeah. somewhere. But Agnes replies, well, we're all from Beaver, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, I, what I particularly love about it is it goes completely over Peter's head. Yeah, he just it does. does not get it, it does, at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And all right. that's our Mooblies. Yes. I'm Mary Jo Peel, and you are listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, it's time for our final verdicts. Should William Friedkin's bug be released from the oubliette to spread its visceral itchiness throughout the masses and be (laughs) adored by all? Or should its tinfoil wrapped infestation be showered in gasoline satellite and turned to smouldering ash back in the oubliette, never to be seen again? Conrad... Your first time watching Bug, what's what's your final take on this movie? Well, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I can't say that it's like an enjoyable experience necessarily. Mm-hmm. And I can't say that it's a film that I'm going to be buying a special 4K edition of and pulling off my shelf to lovingly revisit on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I can see why Mark Kermode, of who is a huge Friedkin aficionado, says that it's his return to form and one of his best films. Ah. Um, And I can see why Friedkin says that it's the most intense project that he'd ever worked on. And, you know, in terms of taking the play and putting it on screen and giving it some touches of cinematic twists, like with the helicopters stuff Uh and the set decoration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and the sound design and the editing and so on and so forth. I think it's a it's a really solid rendering of the play. It's a fascinating topic. The dialogue's amazing. The progression of the characters is amazing. And the mm. performances from Ashley Judd and Michael Shannon and the supporting cast, just astonishing to mm. watch and fully believable and terrifying. So I think it, it would be sort of churlish and wrong, especially considering... Friedkin's recent passing to say no this this isn't (laughs) worthwhile this should go back in it's a solid piece of work from a director that we've sadly lost and it's certainly better than what he did in the 90s I think if you're interested in checking out some of Friedkin's lesser known work I think this is a really good one to Mm -hmm. pick I think it's a very impressive piece of work what do you Mm -hmm. think Yeah, so I have seen this movie before. I did really enjoy it the first time I watched it. Uh, Watching it again, I did feel, yeah, I don't know whether it it does enough in terms of of making it separate from a a, a play. Like, it is just Mm. a play on screen, but not incredibly cinematic. 
But I do love the performances, and they mm. are incredible. They are very, very, very well done. Um, for Ashley Judd, uh, for Michael Shannon, and even Harry Connick Jr. like does a really mm. good job uh, of his character. Um, I think this movie, for some people, might be hard to stomach. It's not your usual type of movie with, like, locations and lots of characters it's just the slow and and inevitable descent of two very um troubled people in a motel room and it's quite fascinating to watch it it is uh i I think it, it it this movie improves on repeat watches as well. I think once you know oh, what's going to happen, you do notice a lot of things in, in terms of the dialogue that you miss. Yeah, I think I think it's a fascinating movie. It's very well done in terms of one location, hardly any characters. Um, I think for some people, it might be, it might appear a bit pretentious as well. Like I think mm. this is a movie. Like film students would really enjoy, uh, and actors would really enjoy. I'm not sure whether general audiences would really enjoy this movie, but yeah, I, I mm. think it's a very impressive film. So I would set it free. Ah, interesting. Well, let's check out and see what our patrons thought. Uh, Hello, Hal. Yes, Conrad. Could we have the final verdict of our patrons, please? Our patrons have decided to throw the film back into the oubliette. Oh, okay. Ooh. Oh, it's the first time we've had the patrons disagree with with what both of us have uh, said. Yeah. It wasn't unanimous, but it does come out as throw it back. So Eddie Coulter said... Break out the raid and drive it back into the oubliette. (laughs) Bug is my least favourite of Friedkin's work. I've watched it a few times over the years and my opinion hasn't changed. I feel it trips over itself with too many twists and turns. Oh, okay, okay. Interesting. So I feel like I need to watch more of Friedkin's movies to to see Mm. what Eddie's talking about there. And Chazilla says, I take notes when I watch films for movie oubliette. Oh, I mean, kudos for the dedication. Wow, I love that! I didn't know people did that. (laughs) No, I I love it. When I finished watching Bug, I found the same three words multiple times on my notepad: crazy, psycho, and what the fuck. The wife kept hitting pause and asking me, are you sure Conrad and Dan picked this? Awesome performances by Ashley Judd and Michael Shannon. They really sold crazy. Just too much insanity and neurosis for me. Is this Friedkin's call for help? Line the oubliette with aluminum foil, lure bug in there, seal it up tight and pour concrete over it just in case crazy really is contagious. Mm. And by the way, we both started itching halfway through. <laughs> oh no, Chisilla, I oh. hope it has subsided. That's not good. Mm. I'm now imagining Chisilla and his lovely wife surrounded by tinfoil. That's not good. <laughs> so, in this case, the patrons disagree with this, but we are going to set it free. Uh, yes, yes, two against one. All right. Be free. I am the super Bye. Oh, wow. 
Okay, Conrad, so what is on the schedule for next episode? Well, we'll be heading back to the 1980s, I'm sure you'll be pleased ah, to hear. Of course. And for another psychological thriller, but this time it's going to be a foreign language movie. Oh, okay. It's the 1983 Dutch psychological thriller, The Fourth Man. Oh, I, I never heard of this movie at all. Yeah, it's the last Dutch language movie Paul Verhoeven made before he went oh. to America to do Robocop. Okay. All right. I don't think I've yeah. seen many Dutch movies, actually. No, me neither. I haven't seen any of his pre Hollywood work, which is mm. really bad. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Be interested to check this out. This was chosen by our special guest who will be joining us next oh, time. Oh, yes. Probably an expert in this film. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to them about it. It's going to be interesting. And to keep up to date with our future episodes, listeners, you can follow us on all our socials as MovieOubliette and email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And you can support the show at Patreon, where for as little as a dollar you get access to extended portions of the show. And for $5, you get to vote on the final verdict like our patrons did today. Yes, Although yes. we overruled them. Yeah. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and also get access to our monthly minisodes, where this month we talked about Barbenheimer. What else could we talk about? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and we also have merchandise at Redbubble and a YouTube channel as well, uh, where you can uh, watch some video essays that we did and some uh, live panels that we were involved with, with uh, several famous people. Mm. And if you haven't already, please give us a rating and review on whatever podcast platform you're uh, using, uh, including Spotify. Mm. Yeah, you can even get the Patreon bonus episodes on Spotify now. Ah, right. Oh, wow. I, I didn't even yeah. know that. <laughs> yeah, that was, it happened this week. Patreon announced it, that you can ah. have a, a special membership-only stream on Spotify. Oh, that's And great. that's where you can get stuff now. Yeah. Ah, technology these days. You can do anything. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, listeners, uh, until next time, goodbye. Bye for now. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't know the movie you'll be yet. It ain't bad luck to kill a smoke alarm.